Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We are joined by a renowned guitarist, composer, arranger, author, educator. He's also a recording artist. He's a native of Carbondale, Pennsylvania, currently resides in Colorado. It's a great pleasure to have Dale Bruning joining us. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm okay. Paul, how are you? Oh, doing well. Doing well. I'm hoping you can take us back and tell us about your early years. Well, my father was a professional drummer, so we had, when I I was a youngster, about seven years old, why I started piano lessons, and one of the things that my dad had as a rule for us children was that if you were interested in any other instruments or different musical pursuits, you must first take piano lessons because he felt that that was the mother instrument and we should all have a a piano background before we go any in any other direction musically and at the time I was a little resistant to that just thinking about some other but on the other hand as time went by why I've always appreciated that 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 was his rule and so I actually studied piano for um, with a couple of different teachers for um, oh, a good handful of years there from seven uh, onward. But then as I got to high school, I was kind of fascinated with being able to play in the high school band. And so I took lessons as well on low brass instruments and played played the tuba and a little baritone horn for a while. And while I was there in those middle years of high school, I I was a little tall for my age. And so an opportunity came to study the string bass, the double bass. And I jumped at that chance because the, the teacher that I could have these free lessons from was a a professional bassist, a classical bassist, but a very accomplished musician. And so uh, I studied um, the double bass with him. But during those years with all of this going on, I, I heard just a friend of the family playing the guitar, and that instrument really fascinated me. So I was sort of like um, a kid in a candy store. You know, I wanted to try out all these different instruments, but I know the guitar just seemed to resonate, so to speak, with me. I just really loved the the, the sound and, and the idea of playing the guitar. So I started studying that, again, by a, an accomplished professional a musician in Carbondale. So things seemed to progress along. My piano background had helped with progressing with the guitar. So by the time I was, oh, between my sophomore 
in junior year in high school, I started playing these little gigs. And uh, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was playing with the quintet. And then when I finished, and of course, I was the punk kid in the band because the quintet, all those guys were in their 30s. They waited for me to to graduate from high school, and about two days after that, why I left on 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 to go on the road with with um, actually not that same quintet, but a, another quartet that uh, I had played with occasionally. So anyway, right out of high school, I there I was on the road doing some playing, and it was mostly we were traveling. Oh, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, mostly in the in that area, you know, the Middle Atlantic states, as well as up into New England a little bit. And I can't remember exactly now all of the different states. But then at the same time, because I had graduated from high school in 1952, and that was, uh, you know, that was Korean War times. And so, I kind of knew I might be getting a call from the service. And so I uh, had learned about an opportunity in the Navy that if you pass the audition, the Navy would guarantee that for your four years, why you would just do nothing but music. And so that's what I did. I took that audition and, and passed into the to the Navy program, and so after boot camp, then they sent me to the Navy School of Music, which was in Washington, D.C., and at that time, the Army didn't have its own music school, so they used the Navy facility, and so for about those, oh, I think I was at the school 10, 10 or 11 months, something like that, and so you rubbed elbows with not only the Navy personnel, but Army personnel, and and uh, you got a chance to uh, perform with some some very uh, accomplished musicians at that time. And so, after the Navy School of Music, why sent me aboard uh, the battleship Missouri for a short time, and then from there they sent me to Cuba, and I was down there for. Oh, a little over two years. So it was interesting. When I first got to Cuba, the bass player had been transferred back to the United States. So the uh, the uh, leader of the band, uh, uh, he said, Bruning, play bass. And so, of course, you just saluted and did what you were told. And then about the time that we finally got a, another replacement for the bass player where the piano player got transferred back to the United States. And so, Bruning, play piano. So, so you were doing whatever you were told. And so, <laughs> during that, that period, especially in Cuba, I, I was playing those other instruments. But then, I was, my last year, I was transferred back to Philadelphia, to the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And there I was just uh, playing the guitar, you know, that was obviously had become my main instrument. But then after the Navy, why my wife and I, in the meantime, while I got married while I was in the Navy, my wife and I settled there 
in Philadelphia, so that was in the about late 50s, about 1957 or so. And I traveled a little bit again as a musician, but then decided to go to school. And I went to Temple University, but at that time at Temple University, and you have to appreciate all this was back in the late 50s, why they wouldn't let me be a music major because my main instrument was the guitar. And they didn't want to recognize that as a legitimate instrument. Of course, things have changed now. Temple, you know, I just read a recent article about the music program at Temple University with Terrell Stafford, and I guess it's quite an excellent program by now. But at that time, uh, they would let me be a music minor, and so I had to declare something else as a major. And so I thought, well, I'll try to get my head on straight and and uh, declared psychology as a uh, as a major. But then, after school, after going to Temple University, but then I pretty much started uh, settled there and started to play actively in in the Philadelphia area. Well, those are a lot of the the younger years, I guess you could say, Paul. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about this television program that you were you became the leader of the house band for. I thought that was interesting. Well, as I was saying, I began to get established there in in the Philadelphia area and uh, was having opportunity to play with some very fine and some well-known uh, instruments uh, in the jazz world. And I got approached by a man named Del Shields, who had a background in both radio and television. And in this case, there was a, you know, how sometimes in the, in the summertime, why they'll have different programming on television. And so he had this show that uh, uh, he was going to be the host of. And so uh, he approached me about, putting together a, a quintet. And so I had the, the good fortune of being able to hire some some very fine uh, musicians. And of course, Dell, he was quite a, um, a knowledgeable uh, a jazz supporter and so on. And so he wanted to know all of the people that I'd have on that band. And so had start we started with Sam Dockery uh, who had been with Art Blakey and then uh, on drums Spex Wright uh, who was a very good friend and had played with John Coltrane and Spex had been with Dizzy Gillespie for a while and and so Spex Wright on drums and then a bass player John Lamb uh, was the first bass player on the show and he but he got a call from Duke Ellington uh, after a couple of broadcasts. And so one day John called and said, Dale, I can't do that television show anymore. I'm, I'm going with Duke Ellington. I said, well, good for you. And so I replaced him with a, a bassist named Skip Johnson, who had played with all kinds of people, and like with Philly Joe Jones and Red Garland. And then on Vibes, there was a, a vibraphonist from 
I think I can't remember whether he was originally from the Philadelphia area, but his name was Roland Johnson. He had been in Europe for a while, but had returned to the United States, and so that became the the, the quintet uh, guitar vibes, uh, piano based drums, and then Sam Dockery got called up. I can't remember exactly what happened with Sam now, but but then I replaced. Sam with a, with a New Jersey pianist named Joe Mancini, who was an excellent musician. So it was quite a good quintet. And so our function on the show was as typical with talk variety shows, Paul. You know, you you played the theme song at the beginning when the when the credits were rolling, and at the beginning with the introduction material, and uh, and then. Each show, uh, we, we'd be featured uh, at least once, but sometimes we would back up the people that were on the show. We had oh, people like Gloria Lynn and the uh, Al Gray, Billy Mitchell, Sextet, and we had uh, a bunch of well, Count Basie alumni like Butch Ballard and, and some other people. We had Nat Cole, Nat Cole on the show, and that was it was beautiful to have him on the show he was such a such an interesting person but disappointedly why we didn't uh, we didn't get, our, our quintet didn't get a chance to play for him he declined he just thought he'd be interviewed on the show but anyway there were the Jimmy Smith trio was another group that we had on but in addition to those musicians why Sometimes there'd be people from the world of fashion and from other arts and so on. And Dell was a very good host and interviewer and so on. And so that was the nature of the show. But I forget how, I think we ran whatever it was for about 15 weeks or, or something of that sort. And then one day Dell called and said, Dale, our contract has not been renewed. And I said, how come? And, you know, we had some pretty good sponsors to begin with for the show. And he said, well, the network and some of these sponsors don't feel that they're ready for a show with the black host. And I said, you're kidding. Mm. I said, you're, you're really saying that? He said, yeah, that's what they said. And because Dell himself is an African American, and of course, a lot of the musicians that I'm mentioning are African American musicians, but so well known in the jazz world. But that's the world of television, I guess. Uh, it, uh, there's, there's a lot more to it than what I totally understand for sure. But uh, that's what brought the show to an end. However, from the notoriety that came with that show, why we as a quintet were working in the top clubs in the Philadelphia area for a while after, even after the show. Well, during the show, we were playing in some of the clubs as well as after the show. And so, um, finally, you know, that, that notoriety kind of dissipated as, as time went on. But, Nonetheless, why it, from a personal standpoint, it, it helped me in the area. So I got a chance to play with, 
with a lot of uh, very fine musicians in the in the Philadelphia. Well, and sometimes Philadelphia, New York, and you're only you're, you're only ninety minutes away from New York. Some of the some of the musicians uh, from New York that that I was playing with during that time. We're joined by guitarist and recording artist Dale Bruning. I'm hoping you can tell us who your biggest musical influences are. Well, I guess early on with that high school teacher that I mentioned, uh, he was totally into Django Reinhardt. And so he drew my attention to Django for sure. And I was fascinated with that, you know, with learning about everyone knows the situation with Django where he he was had his left hand burnt in the fire and could only play with two fingers and and stuff. And and that was fascinating, but then I was pretty amazed to hear what he was doing. But then uh, later on, even while I was just in high school, one day I had a little gig with a saxophonist who said, well, Dale, what do you think about Charlie Christian? And I said, Charlie who? He said, you're a guitar player and you don't know about Charlie Christian? And so I said, no, who's he? He said, well, come with me. And so after the gig, he took me home and he played this recording that Charlie Christian had done with Benny Goodman band called Solo Flight. And oh my goodness, I heard that and I thought, wow, isn't that something that that the guitar can be played that way? And so to answer your question, uh, it was both Django and and uh, Charlie Christian. And, and those two guitarists, it seems, in the history of jazz guitar are kind of like the, the forefathers, the co-founders. You know, there's those two streams one from Django Reinhardt and the other from Charlie Christian. I identified a lot more with with Charlie Christian, having had some experience on those other instruments. And with Charlie Christian playing with Benny Goodman, you know, he was playing with vibes, with the vibraphone and clarinet and saxophone and trumpet and so on. And those were my earliest experiences playing with with horn players and so on. And so I I just had though that influence with Charlie Christian more so than Django, who was often playing, you know, like with Stefan Grappelli with violin and then maybe once in a while clarinet, but or maybe other guitar players or or whatever the case. And, you know, as everyone identifies Django as a gypsy jazz guitarist, you know, and that was the that was the flavor, and I had nothing but but total respect for it. But from my own experiences, I was identifying a lot more with what I was hearing from from Charlie Christian, and so from that, I started listening. Well, of course, to other guitarists, but then I started listening to what was coming out of New York, especially at Birdland, the 52nd Street and Broadway in New York. Because there was a, I can't remember the the call letters now uh, of the radio station that broadcast, but right from the club itself. And 
at night, you know, I'd uh, I was supposed to be getting my rest, but I'd sneak my radio into the uh, under under the covers in my bed so I could listen to all these people that were being broadcast. And so then I started becoming aware of uh, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Lester Young and Ben Webster and, and uh, Coleman Hawkins and Fats Navarro and then later on, you know, Miles Davis. So I'm hearing all of these wonderful horn players as well as the pianists that were impressing me, Oscar Peterson, of course. And then in those days, Thelonious Monk, you know, he was certainly on the scene, but he, he didn't, he wasn't as iconic as he, be, as he eventually became. But I would listen to Bud Powell, especially on uh, piano, and just identified with the pianists and the horn players. And then having had a background with the bass, I was becoming uh, aware of people like Oscar Pettiford and, well, Jimmy Blanton with Duke Ellington, but then later on, Eddie Safransky and and uh, Ray Brown and Red Mitchell, those, those people. So I was influenced by all of those things that were going on, to be sure, Paul. But as far as guitar players were concerned, why I listened to uh, all of them on the scene at that time, you know, Barney Kessel and Mundell Lowe and uh, after that, uh, well, probably to answer your question, of those guitarists, of all of those that, that had kind of come out of that Charlie Christian school, the biggest influence for me of all of those guitarists was Chuck Wayne. I don't know whether you're familiar with uh, Chuck Wayne and his background or not. I am not, no. Well, Chuck, his his given name was Charles Jagoki. He was from a Czechoslovakian family, and as a youngster, he played mandolin, and and uh, I, don't, I don't know whether this is correct or not, ballot-like or whatever, but anyway, he came to the guitar and had that that influence from the horns himself, and so he wanted to be able to play the guitar in a horn-like kind of a fashion, and uh, he was very successful at it. And so when he was young, Chuck played with the Barbara Carroll Trio. He was with Woody Herman for a while. But uh, he lived on Staten Island. And and when George Shearing came to the United States in the, I guess it was in the mid-40s to late-40s, why he put together the first George Shearing quintet that was the piano, guitar, vibes, bass, and drums, the same instantation that I'm talking about that I had with that television show. But this George Shearing had already become quite well-known, and, and of course, not that that should make a difference, but he was a blind, he was born blind, George Shearing, and, and he played from early on both piano and accordion, but when he came to the United States, why he had some good management uh, with him and good advice, and so he formed that quintet with Chuck Wayne and a lady vibraphonist, Marjorie Himes from 
from Detroit, I think, or Chicago, I can't remember. And then Denzel Best on drums and John Levy on bass. And so that quintet, the George Shearing Quintet, became quite prominent. And speaking of Birdland in New York, they played there often. And uh, their recordings started to really make a splash like, Oh, they did things like September in the Rain and and other standards and so on. And so Chuck was in that band, and that's when I first heard him. And uh, so I was really, really in. To answer your question, I was really influenced by by the tone. He got a nice darker tone, and the way the way he phrased and stuff, and it reminded me of of hearing some saxophone players playing. And uh, lo and behold, when I was a kid, uh, still, well, just those high school years, why, I got to meet him, and he was very kind to me. He he recognized that I was a green kid with a lot of enthusiasm for for music and jazz, obviously. And, and so he, so to speak, took me under his wing and, you know, and he would introduce me to people at Birdland, and he'd say, "Well, Dale, I'd like you to meet Stan Getz," and my jaw would drop. Stan Getz, and then he'd say, "Well, now, Dale, here, this is Jimmy Rainey," and and, and, and you know, he was <laughs> in Al McKibben. He was man alive. You know, I was this kid. You know, just awestruck with being able to meet all of these prominent jazz musicians and so on. Well, we stayed in touch, and uh, even after I moved to Colorado, I, uh, when he came here, well, I spent time with him when when he uh, had some playing engagements uh, here in Colorado and so on. But so again, uh, I was just really influenced by Chuck, and then later on, as uh, some some other guitarists started to enter the picture why two of those guitarists I, I thought were certainly influential and one was Wes Montgomery of course and hearing what he could do playing with his thumb and so on and all that whole thing and the nice part is that I met Wes when I had the I was the leader of that quintet on the NBC TV show Jimmy Smith after a taping one day Jimmy Smith said to me, Dale, he says, let's go down and sit in with Wes. And I said, well, you sit in with him, Jim. I'll happily go down. And he says, well, yeah, I'll introduce you to him. So he took me down, and and I got to to visit with Wes Montgomery a little bit. But I was certainly totally impressed with how well that Wes played. And then the other guitarist that I, I really enjoyed so very, very, very much was Jim Hall. And uh, it was just uh, sort of a, a meeting by chance that he had played. This was, this was a jazz club in New Jersey where he was playing with Jimmy Jufri, the tenor saxophonist, and Ralph Pena on bass. And my wife and I had gone over to hear them, and and there weren't. It was a matinee thing, and there weren't too many in the club, and so got got to meet Jim. Well, I sort of stayed in touch a little bit with him, or certainly, I, I don't mean correspond, 
correspondence necessarily, but just paying attention to the things that he was doing, you know, because he had, he had played with Chico Hamilton and now he was with Jimmy Jufrey and doing all of these other interesting things. And it was, <laughs> it was curious that when I think about the time that he went with Sonny Rollins, why I talked with him again and he said, Oh, you're, you're so-and-so's guitar player. And what he was referring to, I had done a recording with, a, with a vocalist and lo and behold, unknown to me, that vocalist was going with Jim Hall at the time. And of course we finished, when we finished the, uh, the masters, why she took, took it to, to Jim, of course, to hear what his thoughts were about her recording. So that kind of gave us another sort of connection. And then when he was with Sonny Rollins, why I'd, uh, I'd go to hear him play often and just totally enjoyed what he was doing. And from there on with Art Farmer. And so uh, I guess I really identified with Jim for the same reasons that I identified with Chuck Wayne when he played these melodic lines why they were very horn-like and reminding me of the saxophone or, or brass instruments. But then the thing that Jim was doing that was really catching my attention, I thought, was he was playing in pianoless rhythm sections. He became the piano player, as it were. He was when he was solo, he was the horn. When he was playing chords, he was the piano. And he had this wonderful way of treating harmony. And so that was another thing that was just uh, totally influential. And so then later on, I had opportunity to, to play with Jim. We did a guitar duo thing, and, and he was just marvelous. Uh, so... I think I speak for most people, not just other guitarists, but people in the world of jazz. If you mention Jim Hall, just like Wes Montgomery, you know, if you mention them where they they say nothing but these wonderful, praiseworthy words about Jim and very deserving. And on top of that, you know, he was just a really nice guy. He just he was like your your next door neighbor or something. And again, those uh, I think I, I, the very early on influences goes back to Charlie Christian, but then the, the later influences, maybe like I'm saying, with all the horns and pianists, pianists and rhythm section players. And of course, I didn't mention much about drums, but I was certainly, with my father being a professional drummer, I was certainly paying attention to what those drummers were doing. But again, to repeat, like maybe Charlie Christian, Chuck Wayne, Jim Hall, Wes Montgomery, those were the things that that I was paying attention to. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about your own recordings. I have quite a number of your albums, and a lot of them are in celebration of a certain composer. Like there's one that you do, it's all the music of Harold Arlen. And it seems like you have, in particular, a love for the classic songs, the American Songbook. That's true, Paul. Uh, however, I, I think I, I must mention in that regard something that 
happened after moving here to Colorado. I had a guitar student, a lady, and her name was Jude Hibbler. And she studied with me very briefly, and then her husband's work took her to California. And then during the... Um, about the 80s, why uh, she and her family returned to Colorado. And then after uh, my wife passed away in the early 90s, and after that, why it was Jude that approached me about our becoming sort of having a partnership in our musical exploits and things. And so uh, it was really her idea. I mean, she knew that I had a love for the American songbook. And when you talked about George Gershwin and Jerome Kern and Harold Arlen and Harry Warren and so on. And so it was Jude's suggestion. She said, if we, we do this, why I'll be able to research the background of some of these wonderful Tin Pan Alley composers and be able to offer things to the audience, an attentive audience, hopefully, that they would find interested in not only about the, the songwriter uh, himself, but uh, some of the the songs and, and how they came about and so on. And so we combined our efforts, and it was, I don't know that I'm remembering the exact year, but probably into the late uh, 90s, because I think I had done some recordings back east, you know, on, on vinyl and so on. But here, in after having moved to Colorado, and, and it was actually after my wife passed away, we went to New York and did that album called Tomorrow's Reflections. And that one didn't necessarily feature a, a composer, it was just some songs that I kind of wanted to uh, record uh, with Michael Moore and Terry Clark and uh, Mark Patterson. But with Jude, we started doing these concerts where she would narrate. Uh, she'd be responsible for the introduction, welcome everyone in the audience, and well, maybe five or ten minutes of, uh, and she'd be on the bandstand with us, and she'd talk about that composer, and then sometimes she'd give me the microphone and and uh, let me explain uh, why we were going to treat one of those well-known songs a certain way, and that depended upon the instrumentation. And so we did those things sometimes with, with trios and all the way up to septets and so on, depending upon the uh, the composer. And so the music was wonderful, like I'm saying, those those composers I mentioned. And then in addition, you know, we did Duke Ellington and and Billy Strayhorn and Tad Dameron, and then we did the, the, you know the bossa nova influence, Antonio Carlos Jobim. And so it was a real delight to to do uh, those concerts. And so in the process, why we hired uh, some mobile recording companies, you know, to come in and 
and record. Uh, so they were most of those recordings are live. You know the concerts that we did that got taped, and so that's so I I give credit deservedly. So I think to Jude for getting that idea to to do that to feature the music of those composers, and we were certainly not the first to do that. I mean, you know, speaking of Oscar Peterson before, you know, he did two or three or four different albums where he featured one composer. And then, of course, the vocalists like Ella Fitzgerald, you know, she'd do the music of George Gershwin or the music of Richard Rogers, or, or I, I can't remember. I have some of those albums, even those old vinyls. So the idea of just doing one composer or for that matter, even doing nothing but just not necessarily a Tin Pan Alley composer, but a but a so-called jazz composer, you know, an instrumentalist who also wrote. So that that wasn't new. But what was new was that she would actually do the the narrating. It wouldn't be something that you'd read in the liner notes or just hear an introduction by. The the host of the concert that you were going to be giving, she was there right through the performances. So she would introduce that composer and, like, say, George Gershwin, talk about him, and then we'd do a, a George Gershwin song. And then when we finished, we'd turn it back over to Jude, and, and she'd talk about that next uh, song. And we even did things like from Porgy and Bess, George Gershwin. I don't know that in our George Gershwin album, I don't think that got got included, although it, it could have and maybe should have. She did a wonderful job with talking about the background of Porgy and Bess. But anyway, to answer your question, Paul, I certainly thought it was a good idea, but I give credit where it's due. That was, that was Jude's idea to do that. One of the albums that you did, I was hoping you can tell us a little bit about it because at the beginning of the interview, we mentioned that you were a music educator, and I'm talking about Reunion, and it's oh. Dale Bruning with special guest Bill Frizzell. Well, that came about, I guess, I think it was like around 2001 or something like that, somewhere in there. You know, I've obviously with Bill, I've stayed in touch with Bill over the years and performed with him. But he was, at that time, living in Seattle. So there's a uh, an organization in Seattle called Earshot, and they bring in all kinds of good people and so on. And so Earshot thought it might be, since Bill was living there in Seattle, that it might be interesting to bring in it, bring bring up from Colorado his old teacher and stuff and and have them just do some stuff together. And so I was up there. Bill met me at the airport, and we, we were up there at a small liberal arts college, Cornish College in uh, Seattle. And uh, that's where, for the week, we did uh, wor workshops, you know, for the music department, but Earshot's involvement uh, came because they were the ones, Earshot's are the ones that hired me to bring me in 
for that week. And on the weekend, why we hired a recording company to come in and tape us. Again, it was with a live audience, but my goodness, they <laughs> we would do workshops in the afternoon and the concerts. We did a couple of concerts at night. They taped just about <laughs> everything we did, I guess. And the audiences that we played for were mostly those in the, at the college, you know, the college music majors, but they opened it up for the public. And so we had some nice uh, audiences to come. But but it was live again, and so when we got together to Bill's house, why we sat down together and thought, well, what are some tunes that we could do since this is, in a manner of speaking, a little reunion for the two of us to be, you know, together again doing things. So Bill had some tunes that he thought he would like to do, and I had some tunes of my own, and uh, I guess I I did some of the arranging of the of the tunes that we were to play, and uh, and uh, he had some ideas on some tunes that he wanted to do, and so on. So we put our heads together and decided what might seem to work, and and uh, and played those. And so with all of that taping that went on, why we had quite a bit to choose from, and so we we feel that we chose the best of the bunch to to do that double double CD album. What has been the experience like for you of teaching? Because I know you've had quite a number of students through the years. A couple of them, some of the listeners might recognize, like Bill Versell, but also Tim O'Brien, for example. Uh, yes, yes. Tim Tim's uh, quite a a well-known bluegrass musician. In Tim's case, he was, I mean, Tim plays violin, he plays mandolin, and uh, the octave mandolin, and obviously guitar. But what he was fascinated with, with the guitar, was uh, hearing people like Freddie Green playing with Count Basie, where he'd played that, that rhythm you know, that forward of the bar kind of rhythm that that Freddie Green is, uh, you know, he became known for that. And his name will always be connected with with that sometimes when people say, oh, they'll play, play some of that rhythm guitar. You know, like Freddie Green, they'll always bring up his name. Well, that was the case with Tim. He wanted to learn more about about doing doing that. But he took whatever I was teaching him and turned it into things that he could use in the in the music that he was totally comfortable with and would uh, play uh, e town in boulder here we've done uh, an album that is somewhere i guess to be released down the road with that includes bill frizzell tim o'brien and myself we recorded a lot of different things on it, but speaking of Tim, why one thing I didn't mention about Tim, he's he's got a a great voice, and he loves to sing like old blues songs and and sometimes some folk songs and things of that sort. So it's a little different twist on on this album 
that we've recorded. I, I, I don't know exactly when that'll be, re- be released, but uh, Nick Forster, who is part of, he and his wife are the ones who operate E-Town there in Boulder. I think when I talked with Nick, well, he, he thought that there might be some, there might be a release toward the end of the year. I don't hold me to that. I'm not sh- sure, but. Anyway, the only reason reason I bring that up is because it so involves Tim, because on that, that album, well, he plays all of his different instruments as well as, as sings, and and Bill and I try to, to hang in there and do what we do. And Tim has stayed in touch over the years, and I've caught his... He plays often in a band called Hot Rise, a bluegrass band, which is an excellent band, bluegrass kind of a band, and that Nick Forster is the bass player in that band. And so he'll sometimes, either by phone or letter or or whatever, uh, you know, we'll, we'll stay in touch. But uh, he just has gotten, he's a good songwriter in that, that realm, you know, of bluegrass. The music, and so have nothing but fondness and respect for what Tim does. Would you say that your music and all these different facets that you've done, from teaching to performing to recording, would you say that there's a greater purpose in all of it? Yes, I think so, Paul. It sometimes is regrettable that American jazz is sometimes more celebrated and given more attention in other countries than the country of its origin. I mean, you can go to Germany or go to the UK or Scandinavian countries, and and they're very familiar with the history of jazz and and many of the innovative musicians, or you can go to Japan. When <laughs> when John Coltrane went went to Japan, and he arrived at the airport, there was a big, huge banner up, "Welcome, John Coltrane." You know, and they they just gave so much respect for those musicians. I'm not saying that in the United States there's a total lack, uh, but it certainly would be more helpful if in public schools and uh, now that I must say that the colleges, many colleges are doing a lot better job with, with including in their curricula, the things, the nuts and bolts of, of music theory, you know, that, is so important for uh, jazz education and and so on. But just I'm talking about maybe the general audience. So to try to answer your question, if through teaching and through composing and 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 performing, especially like with recordings and so on, hopefully it in at least some small measure contributes toward greater appreciation for the music of of its origin. I mean, we know, when you think about jazz itself, uh, you say, well, if you trace back its origins, we're not talking just specifically the United States. We're talking about 
Africa, African rhythms and so on, and European harmonies. If you put all of that together, why, that's it. But that putting it all together did occur here in the United States and so on. And so just in answer to your question again, Paul, to try to have a, a larger purpose to to maybe help people to appreciate the uh, the value of that music and of course you know you're when you think about your own role in it you hope hopefully you uh, have contributed in some small way to greater appreciation for it if you don't mind my sidestepping for just a second speaking of teaching and Jude Hibbler we have for the last few months been doing a little instruction videos that uh, deal with different aspects of jazz guitar, you know, and the technique and melody and harmony and, and rhythmic aspects and repertoire and improvisation. Those things are available through Vimeo.com. Again, there's that motive there to maybe be helpful to to some others who may want to be learning more about, in this case, jazz guitar. But in in the larger sense, going back to what I was saying before, I think it's just to, well, to have the pleasure and the opportunity of, of being able to to give yourself to what that music represents and so on. So hopefully that answers your question. I think when you... When you're in the middle of a teaching method or something, you're probably just thinking about that per se. Or if you're performing somewhere, what well, you're you're thinking more than anything else about how that performance is going. But when you sit back and and try to get the wide angle lens view of things, why well, that's when I think about that about about having uh, the privilege and opportunity of in some small measure contributing to the appreciation of the music that originated here in the United States, namely American jazz. For anyone who's out there, if they want more information, they can visit jazzlinkenterprises.com. At the end of the interviews that I do, I always like to give the guest the stage. Maybe what you would like to say isn't necessarily limited to just music, but for anyone who's listening in, what would you like to say to them? Well, there are so many things that perhaps could be labeled entertainment these days, you know, with with the Internet and video games and there's so so many things that can capture your attention and some of them are very worthwhile and perhaps some others are not quite so worthwhile i would maybe suggest to them that in times past when there weren't, weren't so many different ways of entertaining yourself and your family and your friends a musical concert was a, a true event. And so I guess I, I would suggest that if you learn about someone that's 
coming to town that uh, you haven't heard about or whatever to to put forth some effort to to be able to to hear that uh, hear that person whatever it, it you know and, and it might not be just certainly in just American jazz it could be in um, folk music or or it might be certainly in classical music contemporary classical music uh, as an example uh, Yo-Yo Ma was here in the Denver area this past summer and you know someone like him just this marvelous musician to with all of the different things that and I don't want to call them dis- distractions maybe they're they're things that that people are totally interested in I'm not trying to take away from that but just to make time to to let music and, and other art forms contribute in a in a world where we know there is not there is not a lot of contentment and and a lot of uh, peaceful uh, situations uh, I, I don't mean to get into talking about terrorism or, or anything of that sort but just just to, to let the the arts contribute toward your happiness and and having something worthwhile to look forward to and among those things obviously as a jazz musician I'm suggesting that that be the case so uh, I don't know that that's exactly what uh, you had in mind Paul but those would be my thoughts to share with people to just be more supportive of the arts that is exactly what I had in mind very good well, sir, thank you very much for spending time with us. Oh, you're you're more than welcome. Well, Paul, it's my pleasure to to have you spend a little time with this old guitar player for sure. I, I know that you mentioned when you called before that you had interviewed uh, Bill, and so it just it just makes me appreciate, in lieu of what I was just talking about, you. Spending some time with your with your show to devote it to some some people like like myself, you know, that for what we do. So I I totally appreciate that. My pleasure. All right. Until next time. Okay. Well, listen. The very best to you, and and uh, I hope that the program that you host there. I hope that it continues to grow and that you have and enjoy nothing but success with it. I appreciate that a lot. All right, well, have a wonderful day. Okay, same to you, Paul. We'll talk with you down the road. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.